everyone. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Welcome again to The Empowering Neurologist. On our program today, we're going to talk about cancer. And, you know, truth be known, we're not making a whole lot of progress in uh, dealing with cancer. Cancer rates continue to climb by and large. We're going to be talking to Dr. Thomas Seyfried, who's the author of this incredible book uh, called Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. Dr. Seyfried writes about how cancer may represent a manifestation of changes in what are called the mitochondria, those small uh, energy-producing particles that live within each of our cells. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Seyfried. He received his PhD in genetics and biochemistry from the University of Illinois. He also holds a master's degree in genetics from Illinois State University. He was a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Neurology at Yale University School of Medicine and then served on the faculty as an assistant professor of neurology, uh, again at Yale. Prior to receiving a uh, full professorship, Dr. Seyfried was an associate professor in the Department of Biology at Boston College. Uh, he has had a variety of uh, honors and awards over the year from such uh, diverse organizations as the American Oil Chemist Society, the National Institute of Health, uh, the American Society for uh, Neurochemistry, and the Ketogenic Diet Special Interest Group of the American Epilepsy Society. Dr. Seyfried has previously chaired the Scientific Advisory Committee for the National Tay-Sachs and Allied Diseases Association, and he presently serves on several editorial boards of well-respected uh, scientific journals, including Nutrition and Metabolism, uh, Neurochemical Research, and the Journal of Lipid Research. His research program right now focuses on gene environmental interactions, how our genome uh, interacts with various environmental influences uh, to cause disease and to threaten our health. Uh, he has special interest in things like epilepsy, autism, and brain cancer, uh, as well as other neurodegenerative conditions. Dr. Seyfried investigates many of these diseases from the perspective of genetics, but also from the interplay between uh, our genetics and energy metabolism. Much of his work also has direct <clears throat> translational benefit to the clinic, meaning uh, direct applicability for doctors who are actually treating patients. So I'm real excited about today's interview. Let's get started. Well, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, I'm very excited to chat with you today, Dr. Seyfried, and uh, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'd like to start off, uh, you know, you've dedicated your uh, life, uh, at least as of late, uh, to looking at things like epilepsy, Tay-Sachs, some neurodegenerative conditions, ganglucidose uh, events. But I think what's really gotten uh, a lot of people's attention uh, is the contention that you have with reference to the underlying cause and possible way out uh, of this real mess that we seem to be in as it relates to cancer. And again, uh, just for everyone's uh, benefit, there is this, um, I think, a landmark book that healthcare practitioners need to have in their bookshelves. So first, maybe an overview as to what is the conventional approach today to dealing with cancer. Well, um, it hasn't really changed much in the last, I don't know, maybe 50 years. 
um, basically there's a diagnosis, um, a biopsy, if you will, or some image uh, that will indicate uh, something might be wrong. Um, and then based on, on, on uh, histological preparation, a decision is made as to whether this might appear to be benign or, say, um, um, more aggressive, malignant, if you will. Um, and then a decision is made as to what might be the best course of action to, to, to attempt to manage the disease. And, um, you know, most of the minor cancers can be easily managed with a surgical resection. Uh, if it's shown that this is not um, a, a malignancy, um, and uh, and the and the case is closed. Okay, so many many people who so-called might have considered themselves having cancer um, basically uh, have a benign lesion of some sort, and it's easily resolved. Uh, the issues come when there's some um, consideration that maybe there's something going on here. The number of mitotic figures, what the what the cells might look like to the to the professional pathologist's eye, and then uh, a, a, decision is made, a decision is made to be, perhaps be a little bit more aggressive. So not only do we have the surgical resection, not always, depending on the kind of tumor it is, but then this could be followed by a series of recommended chemotherapies, uh, followed by uh, either radiation, chemo, sometimes a combination of both. Um, most of our work has been done in, in brain cancer, so that's a pretty uh, established procedure the uh, individual would be presenting uh, with some sort of a neurological problem uh, of one form or another or a limb that's not working properly. Uh, a scan of the brain is shown to have some sort of lesion. Um, oftentimes, uh, depending on the, on the image that you get from various uh, scanning procedures, a decision is made to either immediately resect this tumor or uh, possibly have some uh, watchful waiting period. The problem, of course, is in, in, in going into these tumors, uh, especially in brain, um, you, you provoke the microenvironment by the very surgical resection that you do, um, which often leads to then a dissemination of tumor cells uh, that are, in other words, the horse, the bees are out of the hive, the horse is out of the barn. The very, the very act of disturbing the microenvironment can precipitate a more aggressive uh, situation. Yet this is what is, is generally done. Um, and then this is a followed, of course, by a series of radiation and chemo, uh, uh, temozolomide, often in conjunction with uh, dexamethasone, a steroid. Uh, this off, often dexamethasone can be given to other cancer patients to improve their appetite uh, when they're sick from some of the chemo. The latest, the latest um, um, uh, idea is the immunotherapies, uh, which are more or less just simply an extension of the kind of chemotherapies that are already uh, being used. They seem to focus a little bit more on our immune system's ability to try to kill the tumor cells. Um, but but in, in a sense, they're, they're, they're not much different either in, the, uh, uh, in, in their therapeutic effectiveness uh, or in uh, the kinds of adverse effects they, they produce. Um, so we're, we're still dealing uh, with a problem. And the problem, in my mind, stems from the fact that, that the majority of, of, of therapies that we use today are based on the idea that cancer is a genetic disease uh, and these genes cause a um, destabilization of cell proliferation. So many of the chemotherapies that are used are very toxic to try to stop DNA replication. Uh, so, and this obviously leads to hair loss and a variety of other 
uh, maladies that are affecting any kind of a proliferative, uh, proliferating cell in our body, whether it's tumorigenic or not. So we suffer a lot of these indirect adverse effects um, from the very therapies that are used uh, to try to manage the disease. Now, of course, many of these therapies do in fact uh, ca cause a resolution uh, of the disease, provided it, in most cases, as long as it's not a stage three or stage four condition, which are the most aggressive, you know, many of the chemos, radiation, and, and, and surgeries that we use um, are uh, corrective. Uh, they, there's, you know, uh, uh, thousands, millions of people that have been treated with cancer that seem to be doing okay. The, pro the problem is we've put these people now at risk uh, for a variety of other ailments uh, uh, that they, uh, that they have a, as the result of being treated for the, for the disease that they have. Well, this is, there's a new branch of medicine called cancer survivors medicine. So we have a, a, a whole range of different, uh, neurological, um, uh, gastrointestinal cardiovascular problems that occur, uh, month, years, uh, perhaps 10, 20 years after, uh, which then, um, overall lead to um, uh, other kinds of problems, uh, reducing the quality of life in one way or the other. So we have a problem here. We're not, we're not, we're not using therapies that are, that are very effective, that can enhance quality of life and improve overall survival. And uh, we know about these therapies. They're there. They're being used successfully, but not in mainstream medicine. And that's, that's where we think uh, viewing the disease as a metabolic disease will uh, eliminate a lot of the problems that we are currently experiencing in the cancer field at this time. So your work is really an outgrowth of the pioneering work of Otto Warburg back in the uh, 1900s, a work for which he ultimately in 1931 was awarded the Nobel Prize. And Dr. Warburg really felt uh, similarly that uh, this was an issue uh, caused by changes in the functionality of mitochondria that ultimately caused uh, these mitochondria to shift their metabolism away, uh, I mean, to doing what's called aerobic glycolysis, fermentation, which is not, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a situation that's associated with increased inflammation, increased free radical production, ultimately uh, further uh, DNA damage of the mitochondria themselves and probably secondarily damage to the nuclear DNA as well. So this was the work and you must have seized upon this work and had an epiphany one day and how did that affect you? Well, um, it didn't come, uh, when I first started uh, a lot of the work that we were doing, um, I mean, only, I only heard of Warburg's name, uh, didn't really understand uh, what he had done because every textbook discusses Warburg's biochemistry. You know, he was the preeminent biochemist of the 20th century. Right. Um, and he had done a lot of uh, things. And you hear Warburg's, you know, in, in glycolysis and lactic acid fermentation and, and these kinds of things and respiration. But it wasn't, didn't connect with us until we started to uh, use, as, as a matter of fact, we were given a drug, uh, an anti-gangliocyte synthesis inhibitor that seemed to work um, really well in stopping tumor growth. And of course, the, the company got very excited about this. But then when we did all the pr appropriate controls, we found this drug was working really well. But when we did the appropriate controls, it turned out that the drug was, was interfering with the um, digestion of foods that were eaten. So it was like an indirect calorie restriction. So then when we put in the control experiments with the mice that were fed 
to match the body weight of the drug-treated animals, the tumor reduction was the same. It was absolutely no difference between. So this opened our eyes to say, whoa, this calorie restriction is very powerful. And we did a lot of studies on this. And then we began to ask, you know, what is the mechanism by which calorie restriction shrinks tumors? And it became clear. It, they lower blood sugar and they elevate ketones. And this links directly to Warburg's central theory that the cells need, need glucose. And the answer is, the question is, um, um, how is it possible that these tumor cells need so much glucose? And uh, Warburg's uh, key uh, contribution was showing that the respiratory system of the cell is damaged. And if the cell is going to live, it has to engage alternative sources of energy. And the most primitive source of energy we know on the planet is fermentation energy. And uh, aerobic fermentation or they say aerobic glycolysis, is simply a reversion back to the situation that existed on the planet for all organisms before oxygen came into the environment. Back then, a couple of 2.5 billion years ago, all the organisms on the planet at that time were fermenters. So this is an heirloom uh, that has now become uh, reinvigorated in these tumor cells. So, and then it became clear that they ferment uh, two major fuels, glucose and glutamine, and glutamine is metabolized to glutamate, which then generates tremendous energy uh, from TCA cycle uh, fermentation. It's a different kind of energy. Uh, it's an ancient energy pathway, just like in the cytoplasm is glycolysis. So these tumor cells are simply reverting back to the way all organisms existed on the planet before oxygen. So one has to simply ask, what kept those cells alive and what what did they do? Say fermented. Okay, what did they ferment? They ferment glucose and glutamine. What happens when you deprive tumor cells of glucose and glutamine? They die. So the the unique thing that Warburg didn't know, he didn't know substrate level phosphorylation in the TCA cycle, and he didn't know that, that ketones could not be fermented, or if he did, he didn't he didn't write much about it. So what we simply do is prepare patients or mice and we transition their whole body over to, a, uh, to high ketones and low glucose, which is done through ketogenic diets. This prepares the body for the uh, various drugs and procedures that work synergistically uh, with the diet. The diet alone will not resolve cancer in most patients. However, when it is used with specific drugs and procedures, it's unbelievably powerful. And it's only when you put these together that you get this in synergy, which can target and kill tumor cells without toxicity. And this well, is the nice thing. You, you just said something I think that's really very important for our viewers, actually several things. And that is that you're not proposing that this ketogenic approach is going to cure all cancers by any means, but is used along with as an adjunct sort of in a systems approach uh, and our viewers have seen that before, as uh, the Dr. Dale Bredesen's approach, for example, to Alzheimer's, that multiple uh, ideas are utilized to create the most favorable environment uh, for dealing with a situation. So again, to simplify then for our viewers, what you're saying is that the cancer cells basically uh, are going to uh, require sugar for, or they don't have the ability uh, to utilize these uh, fat derivatives, uh, these ketones, um, as a fuel source, as opposed to our normal non-cancer cells, 
which can use these ketones as fuel sources. And you're exploiting that by basically depriving these cancer cells of what they need, i.e. sugar and, and carbohydrate-derived fuels. Yes, yes, and it works beautifully. Uh, I've seen spectacular results. In fact, it works much better in humans than it does in the mice. Um, we, know, we've, we were very excited to see how powerful these approaches were in the animal models, but we have yet to cure uh, a mouse uh, of metastatic uh, cancer or glioblastoma. You know, some people will say, oh, they cure cancer in mice all the time. Not, not the mice that have the same kinds of cancers as humans have. I can tell you that. Well, just for our uh, viewers, I'd like to uh, call, uh, just recommend that you consider uh, Googling on um, the Huffington Post an article I wrote uh, summarizing Dr. Seyfried's work several years ago uh, that dealt with the, the several of your case pub, uh, published cases dealing with glioblastoma, a very challenging a type of brain cancer, extremely aggressive, but by using, again, this ketogenic approach as an adjunct, as an add-on therapy. And again, you know, our, our viewers watching this are pretty well uh, clued into other uh, upsides of being more ketogenic and reducing their carbohydrate intake. So uh, thereafter, where do we stand then in terms of mechanistically, what are we doing to these mitochondria, these energy producers, when we are feeding them ketones as opposed to uh, having them shifted to just utilizing glucose or glutamine? Well, um, the ketones uh, uh, cause uh, metabolic stress in the, in the mitochondria of the tumor cell, um, but they enhance the, the metabolic efficiency in normal cells. So, um, you know, one of the things when, when they say cancer cells are drug resistant and, and radiation resistant and they have this capability, those, those resist, that resistance in those tumor cells is the result of their fermentation pathways. So both glucose and glutamine increase dramatically glu uh, glutathione, the antioxidant capability in those tumor cells. So the tumor cells are resistant to many chemotherapeutic drugs and radiation because they're fermenting like crazy. So if you're going to make them vulnerable to these kinds of therapies, you have to, you have to remove the fermentation shield. And you do that by, by uh, gradually removing glucose and gradually removing glutamine, which now puts these tumor cells at incredible uh, uh, vulnerability to a little bit of elevation in oxygen. And the ketones will, will, uh, uh, will facilitate that, but so will hyperbaric oxygen. So if you, if I was you just going to ask you that. Yeah. Who knew? You know, see, hyperbaric oxygen alone, like the diet alone, is not likely to have major therapeutic benefit to patients, all right? But when you prepare the patient metabolically and then use hyperbaric oxygen together with drugs that put a little bit more restriction on glucose and glutamine, the results are unbelievable. I mean, these tumor cells are just decimated, and uh, it works remarkably well in humans. I've seen data in humans now. Uh, from uh, Egypt and Turkey, where they're, where they're less restricted in the way they treat cancer patients, with spectacular results on stage a variety of stage four cancers, using minimal amounts of chemotherapy together with ketogenic diets and hyperbaric oxygen, and a few drugs like 2-deoxyglucose and some of these that work together, and, and the results are, are almost incomprehensibly good. I, I, I don't think, once this, once this becomes known, <laughs> I think I think it's going to be earth shattering. Uh, it's just that it's just that people always ask, where are the clinical trials to do this? Where is the evidence based medicine to support what we're saying? And the the issue is here, of course, is clinical trials are 
are, are, are double-blind crossovers to look for a singular drug on a particular problem. Exactly. We have to change that because, because the way we use uh, metabolic therapy is a combination of drugs, diets, and procedures that are dosed um, and, and strategically used in scheduling and timing. And all of this varies depending on the individual. So one shoe does not fit all. So this has to, our, our view of how we manage the disease has to be changed dramatically to incorporate this new way of managing cancer. I want to just go back for a moment to our discussion on uh, treating patients with this brain uh, cancer, glioblastoma. And uh, in one of your case reports, uh, you, you mentioned how one of the uh, individuals was treated with steroids, with dexamethasone. And uh, interestingly, one of the things that we as clinicians uh, see commonly when patients are given steroids like decadron or dexamethasone is their blood sugars go up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in that regard, then while you're acutely reducing inflammation and you look at the repeat MRI scan and you see, oh, the tumor looks smaller, the degree of inflammation surrounding that tumor looks reduced, we must be making progress. Uh, the reality is based upon your thesis that giving a drug that may very well increase uh, sugar, glucose availability might be absolutely doing more harm than good in the long run. Yes, well, we've written about that um, um, uh, often. And uh, just recently, within the last year, the work from the group from uh, Stoop and colleagues who actually write the standard of care for glioblastoma worldwide have now come out with a paper uh, urging caution in using steroids for people with brain cancer, uh, glioblastoma and other cancers, for the very reasons that I've mentioned. It does a lot of damage in other ways to facilitate, actually, uh, it gives you a false information about the success. If you have a patient who has a brain tumor and that tumor is growing and it has a lot of edema, it generally will press on some region of the brain uh, causing some maybe paralysis in the face, the arm, or the leg. And when you administer the dexamethasone, uh, you reduce the edema, and it makes it the patient uh, uh, feel like there's a miraculous change in the tumor. And everybody's it's happy very, and feeling confident, but in yeah, reality, yeah. it's a Faustian uh, maneuver. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Because everybody, oh, look, at, I'm feeling good now, you know, the, I, the, the various things. But, but the problem is, is, is that you've reduced edema, uh, but you're also increasing the rate at which the tumor cells are growing. Right. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that we've been saying this for a number of years, that de dexamethasone should not be used against brain cancer patients uh, for the most part. Um, and the recent paper coming out from Stoops Group, who leads, who, who defines the standard of care. You can go into any neuro-oncology clinic today in the top hospitals, and they are using huge doses of dexamethasone to treat their patients. It's unconscionable. It, they, I don't know if they don't read the literature, they're unfamiliar with the metabolism, I, I just don't understand it. I think it goes right back to the short-term gains, clinical improvement as measured subjectively and objectively by performance. Uh, and like you say, people suddenly feel better, they regain function and everybody's happy, and that is really short-lived, uh, you know, that, that sort of improvement, and then uh, the back end of the hurricane comes around. Um, yeah. I want. I want to go back to uh, the, the notion, no, well, really. There's one more thing I'd sure, like sure. to say about the standard of care for, for glioblastoma. And it's not just the uh, using of the dexamethasone and elevating blood sugar. It's also the fact that when you irradiate the brain, you create a tremendous amount of necrosis, 
which then frees up the glutamine. And the glutamine mm. now becomes a prime fuel. And when you put glucose and glutamine together in the microenvironment, you send up a, 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 the perfect storm of adverse effects that will lead to the rapid growth of the tumor and the demise of the patient. Um, the, everybody knows this is palliative anyway. So it's not most it's this uh, the standard of care for glioblastoma is not considered curative. But the but the problem is so many patients think it is. And uh, it's a real tragedy of monumental proportions to think that we are we are treating people with procedures that are going to create an environment that's going to lead to the rapid growth and their demise. And then we throw in the toxic drug temozolomide which is often used together with the radiation. And this creates more necrosis, more problems. Uh, and now recent paper showed that the temozolomide increases so-called driver genetic mutations, which make no sense at all. Yet you have a little bit of an increase in overall, in progression-free survival, not overall survival. So the whole concept of how we're treating brain cancer is is upside down. It's It's not it's not right. And, um, and, and the results are clearly in the survival statistics, which are abysmal. But those abysmal survival statistics are directly the result of the treatments that we're using. I know so many patients who have abandoned the standard of care, who are using metabolic therapy and are doing so much better. And problem is, oh, where are the clinical trials for this? Well, who's going to do this? Yes. What hospital is going to say, we are going to abandon radiation and chemo and do metabolic therapy? Well, beyond that, who's going to underwrite those studies? Yeah, that's another issue. That's another issue. Yeah, and, and you know, just to be very clear about it for our viewers, that is... Uh, that studies are underwritten by people who develop these uh, monotherapies or these drugs uh, in the hopes that they are successful and hence their product will be the standard of care. Uh, I want to go back to your contention uh, that this is ultimately, cancer in general, is ultimately a mitochondropathy. It is an acquired mitochondropathy and you know, we've been talking about that in terms of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's for quite some time. But it is an acquired failure or disruption of the way that mitochondria are involved in energy production. That said, first walk us through that. And then secondly, let's talk about this notion of mitochondrial therapy as sort of being uh, the, the moniker under which your program uh, takes its support. Yeah, well, first of all, um, uh, Albert St. Georgi, also uh, a Nobel uh, laureate, um, back in the uh, 1979, published a very interesting paper in uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, describing what he referred to as the oncogenic paradox. Uh, the paradox basically said, how is it possible that all these so-called provocative disparate agents from the environment or some rare inherited mutations might produce cancer through a common pathophysiological mechanism. And this was a, a, an enigma, there was, as it was, it's a paradox. You know, some people got cancer from being exposed to cigarette smoke. Other people got cancer from, uh, um, uh, you know, from being exposed to a chemical carcinogen. Some people got cancer from being exposed to radiation. I mean, it was like uh, uh, many different uh, origins uh, on, on the surface. But what, um, what was common to all of these, and that's what we put, I put together in the book for the first time, was that um, they, all of these impact uh, either directly or indirectly uh, on the mitochondria. So you have inherited gene mutations that, that uh, increase your risk for cancer, 
but the products of those gene mutations damage the respiration. Every one of the provocative agents in the paradox, in one way or another, will damage the respiration, but not too acutely. It's a chronic progressive damage to the, radi to the res respiration, and in order to survive, the cell has to uh, upregulate a more primitive uh, form of energy. So what, what happens is once the mitochondria in a particular population of cells, in a particular organ, in a given patient, those cells signal, that mitochondria signal with a very sophisticated biochemical procedure mechanism, the nucleus. And, and the nucleus responds by upregulating genes that turn on fermentation pathways. So if the cell cannot ferment, it can never become a tumor because all tumor cells are fermenters. So we have certain cells in our bodies like neurons in the brain. They can't ferment. So when you take away their respiratory capacity, they either die or they shrivel up or they have these problems. So you don't get tumors very often from neurons. You get tumors in the brain from glial cells. And glial cells, or even heart uh, cells, don't muscle cells. If you have a, if you have cells with a lot of mitochondria, and you damage the respiration, those cells often die. They don't usually become tumors. But on liver, kidney, spleen, bladder, and uh, breast and lung, you know, you have a, those cells have a capacity to ferment when respiration is damaged. So those cells can go on and form tumor. So you you have to have cells that when respiration is chronically damaged, the cell has the capacity to upregulate fermentation. And in that process, there's, a, there's a, a vicious cycle where mitochondria become more damaged, leading to reactive oxygen species, which then, as you said, damage the nucleus, causing the gene mutations, which are largely red herrings. So majority of the cancer field is focused on red herrings. They are the effects. They are not the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem is the damage to the respiration, which then leads to a cascading series of events, which most people are focusing on, oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. You know, the, muta the, the somatic mutations are simply an effect of ROS damage. Oncogene turn-on are transcription factors that upregulate fermentation. So if the cell is going to survive, it's going to need fermentation. It's, a, it's inefficient. So you need more glucose transporters. You need more glutamine transporters. You need all the things that that cell is going to need to ferment. And that's what the oncogenes are doing. But they're an effect. They're not the cause. There's a mechanism, at least uh, with respect to neurons, whereby when there are deficiencies of mitochondrial function, compromised uh, energy production, uh, and ultimately changes in the transmembrane electro uh, potential, that through transmembrane cytochrome C, caspase enzymes are activated and ultimately apoptosis is initiated. Right. But I guess there's a balance here between that, which would then be positive, shutting that cell down, uh, versus proliferation. And might that be then the nuclear DNA modification that then uh, allows this to propagate? You mean the proliferation aspect? Yes. Uh, no, it's the fermentation. So, so it's the, uh, the initiation uh, of fermentation then allows it to bypass the fact that this is a mitochondrial dysfunction. Well, because the mitochondria, as you said, they control apoptosis. The mitochondria have uh, controlled the kill switch in the cell. Yes. So when mitochondria to recytochrome uh, uh, C and uh, and initiate the uh, the apoptotic cascade, that's that's the result of a of a generally uh, functional mitochondria. Um, but if you have cells that have defective mitochondria, therefore the kill switch doesn't work. And the cells are now already in this fermentation pathway. And it was shown by Sonin Shinasato at Tufts University that the default state of cells is proliferation. Mm 
So what's keeping the, diff the, the cell in a differentiated state is the function of the respiration system, which is the mitochondria. So when that becomes damaged, the cell falls back on its default state, which is proliferation. And yet we have this mechanism whereby defective mitochondria are uh, eliminated through autophagy or mitophagy, where they self-select uh, for their own demise. Why does that fail? And, and if that's the case, what can we do to enhance autophagy or the, the or nature's way of getting rid of those defective mitochondria? Well, that now uh, impacts on the, on the concept of prevention. This is different than once the tumor has already uh, established and is now invading and growing. And I'll talk about the nature of meta metastasis uh, in a bit. But um, to protect, and you can't, in my mind, you can't get cancer uh, if your mitochondria are healthy. So healthy mitochondria, if the, if the origin of the disease is mitochondrial respiratory damage, and you do certain um, fasting and uh, various certain diets that maintain the health and vitality of the body, it's very unlikely that you will get cancer. So maintaining uh, healthy mitochondria, and as I said, therapeutic fasting uh, reduces blood sugar, increases ketones, and uh, facilitates autophagy uh, for failing mitochondria. And what happens is the, those mitochondria that don't work properly are phagocytosed inside the cell. It's actually a lysosomal fusion. And they are the fuels of that mitochondria are then redistributed to the rest of the cell. So that's well and good for people who are interested in preventing cancer. I would say the vast majority of people are more interested in what are you going to do for me after I have the disease? Because we know how to prevent cancer, and Warburg knew how to do that. Cancer is uh, most cancers are almost completely prevented if you follow uh, these kinds of things. Even if you are in fact exposed to some uh, toxic. Uh, carcinogens in the environment. Uh, if you can maintain healthy mitochondrial function, you reduce significantly the risk. Even, even those inherited mutations, it's another very interesting thing like BRCA1 that you hear about, the leaf frown many P53 mutations. None of those mutations are 100% uh, 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 penetrant. We know BRCA1 is like, what, 40% penetrant? I mean, 60% of the people that have the mutation never develop the disease. So there, it can't be the primary cause. It's got to be a secondary cause. Because what, only in the patients where you, BRCA1 causes cancer do you see the fermentation phenotype. Same with Lee Fraumeni, the P53. There's 20% of people who have P53 mutations never get cancer. So because they never damage, never cause the, the, the uh, irreversible damage or the, 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 the damage to the respiration. So prevention is keep your mitochondrial healthy. Uh, management is how you starve the tumor cell of its fermentable fuels. Uh, and this both can be done. Both of these processes can be done. And the autophagy process plays a much greater role in prevention or in the early stages of the tumor. Because if the tumor reaches a, a, a very aggressive state, there's very few mitochondria left in the tumor cell to resurrect. So it's, it has to be killed outright. You cannot uh, re-educate a tumor cell to enter back into the society of cells if its respiratory system is, is compromised to a certain extent. Let me uh, just ha take, have our viewers take a breath here and recognize uh, that you heard a lot of similarities just now between what Dr. Seyfried was talking about and what our discussions have been over the past several years in terms of approaches for brain health in general, that we are trying to shift metabolism to a state of lower oxidative 
stress, of, the, of less creation of both inflammation and these damaging reactive oxygen and nitrogen species. Uh, that said, the damaging effects of the uh, perturbed mitochondrial function in the creation then of these enhanced free radicals is a nuclear event affecting nuclear components, protein, fat, and most importantly, DNA. But your contention is that cancer is not a nuclear event, uh, but that uh, that seems to be where all the research is, is looking at nuclear DNA and nuclear uh, issues. Right, and most of it is secondary. And, and, the, and the strongest evidence for that are the nuclear transfer experiments, which I bundled up for the very first time. They have always been present in the literature over decades. They were just what was, what was considered anomalies. Um, they, they were not dealt seriously. And people, people um, felt very uncomfortable. They didn't want to deal with it because it wasn't consistent with the nuclear problem, uh, that cancer is a genetic disease. And this was done by a number of distinguished, the best developmental biologists that, that were present and still are present in the field, taking the nucleus out of a tumor cell that has the so-called driver mutations and, and somatic mutations and all the genetic so-called defects and, and having the cell growing, uh, growing out of control. And you take that nucleus and now put it into a new cytoplasm and you can develop new tissues and new organisms uh, uh, from the nucleus of the tumor cell that's a, that contains, supposedly contains the origin of the disease. And what happens is usually those nuclei, those tumor nuclei, abort development, but they do not cause the cancer. They do not cause the prime phenotype. What when we've look, seen in Alzheimer's, uh, in similar experiments, but with transfer of mitochondria, we do develop uh, the Alzheimer's uh, model in rodents that have received mitochondrial transplantation from uh, those uh, that are genetically uh, predisposed to getting Alzheimer's disease. So that is exactly supportive of your contention using the Alzheimer's metaphor. Yeah, I, and I think, you know, without one of the, what the NCI had a, a, a few years ago, I don't know if they still do, they had these provocative questions that were supposed to define cancer research for the rest of this century. And, you know, one of the provocative questions is, is how come people with Alzheimer's disease are at lower risk for, for cancer in general? And uh, what we now know about Alzheimer's disease, it's a hypometabolic disorder. It's a, it's a, it's a global energy problem. And um, uh, there's fewer glucose transporters. Glucose metabolism is reduced in the brains and in the system of these. It just so happens that the brain, the neurons are more vulnerable than other cells in the, in the system. You, you're not going to be able to generate a tumor if the very, if the very uh, structures needed to bring fermentable fuels into the cell are, are, are diminished. And that's one of the one of the connections between uh, the lack of or the reduced risk for cancer in patients that have Alzheimer's. That was one of the provocative questions. And neurons, as I said, they shrivel up. So um, the neurons are suffering uh, because they can't they can't ferment in a, in a in a in a in a in a in a consistent way. So they're going to be um, energy starved essentially. Uh, uh, they're, they're, and this is why ketones. Uh, by the work of uh, Richard Veach and a number of other, uh, they're using they're using ketone esters to prevent the degeneration of neurons in Alzheimer's disease, and this is a uh, almost the inverse of what cancer is. It's a it's a hypometabolic rather than a hypermetabolic system. So for our viewers, I would refer back to the interview that we did uh, with uh, Dr. Mary Newport, uh, yes. and also the work of Dr. Mark Matson and Dr. Richard Veach as well that we've we've quoted many times. So. Um, 
What I think I hear you saying is, by and large, the best diet to be on is one that favors the body's production of ketones. In other words, a, a higher fat, lower carb diet. I think it's I think it's uh, good for do people to do that periodically. Uh, I'm not saying you know Mediterranean diets. There's so many diets that are really quite healthy for the body. Um, but if one were to be overly concerned about their risk for cancer, suppose they have a family history or whatever, um, therapeutic fasting, which is just water only for for several days, then transitioned into a uh, a more ketotic state like bulletproof coffee or, or avocados, or you, what you do is you maintain and the consistent, uh, low baseline glucose and keep elevating the ketones. And that, and that increases the Delta G prime of ATP hydrolysis. It's a very, it's a very sophisticated, but complicated system that, uh, uh that Dr. Veach has, has clearly shown. Um, you, you produce much fewer oxygen radicals, but you enhance the health and vitality of the mitochondria. You don't need to do this all the time. I, I think people sometimes fear that, oh, I, the rest of my life I have to spend eating avocados and fasting or, or something along these lines or eat, eating butter or, or whatever. And uh, that's not true. I, I, think, um, I, I think people just have to be cognizant of what they need to do periodically to uh, restructure and regain the health of their mitochondria to prevent uh, a variety of different diseases that are linked to uh, energy, energy defects. So then a periodic uh, fast followed by introduction of MCT oil, coconut oil, uh, yeah. other uh, good fats yeah. uh, would allow us to enhance autophagy, get rid of those defective mitochondria, really basically clean house and then hit the yes. reset button. Yes, exactly. exactly. And, I, and that was part of chapter 19 in my book uh, where I called it um, um, uh, autolytic cannibalism. It's basically a way that our bodies... Uh, go after the inefficient, it, 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 the inefficient cells, and, and then they, 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 they um, phagocytize them um, and they just redistribute the, the nutrients to the rest of the cells in our body. So we're, re, we're re rejuvenating. Because don't forget, uh, death is simply entropy, which is disorder. And, um, and what maintains, uh, what we can never stop this, we can just simply delay it. All right. We can either accelerate ent entropy or we can delay entropy and entropy resides in the energetic efficiency of our respiratory system. Uh, as we age, our respiratory system goes down and a lot of cells uh, die and we, we get old and we die. But that's simply uh, uh, the, the, the concept of the second law of thermodynamics, which is which is entropy. So by keeping your mitochondria and energy efficiency, you will delay uh, entropy. That's basically what we can do. We can never prevent it because that's the, the second law, but we can certainly delay it. And these therapeutic fasts and these kinds of things are simply a way to delay entropy, reduce the risk for Alzheimer's disease and a variety of these other various chronic diseases, type 2 diabetes. I mean, when you think about it, they're all uh, related together. They, they all put stress on the, on the efficiency of our energy system. Some people get cancer because the, the hypoxic uh, cause of that leads to a, an upregulation of fermentation in the cyclic event. Other people could get Alzheimer's. Some people get type 2 diabetes. Whatever it is, it's, it's generally the uh, impact of, of a lifestyle and, and uh, diets uh, on the efficiency of our energetic system leading to a variety of, of maladies. Uh, which represent probably, and you, you know better than me, maybe 80% of all the afflictions we have in this country are in one way or another uh, related to one of these uh, disturbances in energy balance. 
Well, you know, according to the World Health Organization, this is now, uh, these types of diseases, the number one cause of death on the planet. And, you know, we live in a world of uh, uh, where it, uh, people are trying to um, just uh, look at everything through a very microscopic lens of specialization when some of us, like yourself, are taking a step back and looking at the broad picture. What are the underlying common mechanisms here that seem to be at play involving things like cancer and chronic degenerative conditions, including Alzheimer's, coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, and even some of the other inflammatory conditions. So I think, interestingly, uh, from a historical perspective, what you are discussing and what we've talked about is really getting uh, our physiology uh, back to a place where it was prior to this bombardment of our bodies with uh, sugar and other forms of carbohydrate. You know, truthfully, we've never had access to sugar, certainly like we have now, and we sought out uh, fat as a concentrated source of calories, though we didn't understand that, during mm -hmm. our periods of hunting and gathering, oftentimes having to fast by necessity uh, put upon us for who knows how long, days at a time. So, you know, this is likely the condition of the human for 99.6% uh, of our time on this planet. And, you know, our microbiome adapted to that, our, our um, mitochondria adapted to that. And suddenly we've turned the tables in terms of food representing information and look at what's happening around us. It's no surprise. Yeah, and I, I don't think we're ever going to, uh, going to change that. Um, that all we have to do is become aware of it. And uh, I, I think um, if we know what to do, uh, we can at least take charge, take a little bit of charge and control over, over, over the, the system. The food industry, you know, it has specialized in producing, producing foods that are unbelievably tasty, uh, uh, depleted in nutrition, but remarkably tasting because all our, we've always struggled to have things sweet. I mean, we would have to wait for seasonal ripes, ripening of berries and, and things like this, and then we would get very excited. But it was only temporary. Now we have it 24-7. Uh, any, any, any supermarket will provide you with that same level of pleasure. Um, but, you know, so, so we know if we can just periodically set, uh, take a step back and say, okay, uh, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to deprive myself of a big pizza every now and then, but you know, everybody or whatever what pleases someone, but at least, you know, what you can do, uh, to occasionally, uh, re reconfigure your, your energy metabolism. Um, we, we, we published a paper showing the glucose ketone index calculator. And I was kind of surprised, uh, it was for cancer patients basically, but I was surprised at how many, um, people who are interested in just general health have embraced this this calculator what it does is it it measures the level of the ratio of blood glucose to blood ketones and basically when you are therapeutically fasting you have a very low glucose ketone index below one which means that there's more ketones circulating in your bloodstream than there is glucose on a millimolar on a on a, on a regular concentration and people experience all these you know wonderful ex health uh it's like therapeutic fasting ketogenic diets People look to see how their their index is, and I and I see many of these um, athletes, uh, elite athletes, and various health uh, health guys, uh, health gurus, and all these kinds of people. They're all uh, many of them are discussing this um, their index. What's their index? And it's a way of knowing how healthy you are at a particular period of time. Now we can't stay in those health zones forever, but every now and then it's good to enter them 
and hang out there for a short period of time and then go back into the regular environment. But What's a short period of time? Well, I would say that if you can get your index in the range of close to 1.0 or below, um, you know, for like three to four to five days, um, I think you're doing remarkable benefit, uh, health benefits to your body. This is the situation where you're going to now uh, enhance the health and vitality of your mitochondria in the, in the cells of your body. So you'll be reducing oxygen-free radicals, uh, using autophagy to, uh, to remove uh, those, those uh, cellular components that are not efficient, uh, even removing some cells that are not efficient because they'll be phagocytosed by our immune system. So, so, um, but at least you have a guideline because people didn't know in the past. There was no biomarker that you could look at and say, oh, what's your index? If you have an index 1.0 or below, you know you're in a state of therapeutic ketosis, and you know that your body is now in a healing mode, and uh, you're going to know that this and how long you want to stay in that, in that zone is up to you. But at least you say, you know, there's some people who, ch who checked our stuff, um, and they did a five-day water-only fast, and they showed that exactly as we published, they remained in these zones. And then they go beyond that. They started doing 10 days and this kind of stuff. I mean, the human, the human is a, an addictive. They seem to go to extremes on certain of these. I never say, you know, do a 25-day fast or something. Like but some people do this. I, and, and they're always trying to keep as long as they can in these zones. And, you know, and we always go overboard you know, in, the, in some of these things. But you don't have to. I mean, it's just, you know, dovetail the experience in with a religious experience, a, a retreat. I don't know. And people can do this however way they want to do it. But they don't have to feel that they, they have to do this, you know, for long periods of time. It's just very interesting. It's the, human, it's the human nature. Well, let me thank you for sharing your time with us today. This has been incredibly powerful information. And uh, I know that uh, people who are watching this are really going to get a lot out of it. And again, uh, this, is a, this is a book for every healthcare practitioner needs to be on your shelf. So thanks so much for, sh for being I, I with us today. Want, I just want to say one more thing. Uh, Travis Christofferson has written a book called uh, um, Tripping Over the Truth, uh, The Metabolic Theory of Cancer. And it was based on my book, and it's, it's written more for the layperson. You Great. know, my book is written for the, the, not only the layperson, but the scientist engaged in the field. But I think Travis's book um, is really exploding on the, uh, on, the, uh, on the various bookstores and things like this. Well, that's and a great plug, and the name of the book is Tripping on the Truth. Tripping over the truth. Tripping over the truth. Okay, we'll yeah. see if we can add that into the blog that will accompany uh, this yeah. video. We'll put a link to that. That's, that's terrific. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll talk soon. Thank you again. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. What a terrific uh, person. What an amazing researcher who has dedicated his life to really looking at things in a different way. And he's making such incredibly uh, good progress in really trying to re-educate uh, us in terms of the paradigm uh, underlying uh, cancer as a generality. And I think it's good to take a step back oftentimes and look at the broad strokes uh, that may be involved here. Again, here's his book, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. Uh, this, I, I think, is uh, really one of the foundational books, uh, at least for healthcare practitioners, that uh, really should be a part of your reading list. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter.